Oh, yes, said Granny calmly. Nanny's patience gave out. It's a house of ill repute is what it is. On the contrary, said Granny, I believe people speak very highly of it. You knew, and you never told me. Granny raised an ironic eyebrow. The lady who invented the strawberry wobbler? Well, yes, but we all live life the best way we can, Githa, and there's a lot of people who think witches are bad. Yes, but before you criticise someone, Githa, walk a mile in their shoes, said Granny with a faint smile. In those shoes she was wearing, I'd twist me ankle, said Nanny, gritting her teeth. I'd need a ladder just to get in them. It was infuriating, the way Granny tricked you into reading her half of the dialogue and opened your mind to yourself in unexpected ways. And it's a welcoming place and the beds are soft, said Granny. Warm too, I expect, said Nanny Og, giving in, and there's always a friendly light in the window. Dear me, Githa Og, I always thought you were unshockable. Shockable, no, said Nanny. Easily surprised, yes. Dr. Undershaft, the chorus master, peered at Agnes over the top of his half-moon spectacles. "'The, um, departure, Aria, as it is known,' he said, "'is quite a little masterpiece. "'Not one of the great operatic highlights, but very memorable nevertheless.' "'His eyes misted over. "'Questa maledetta sings Iodine as she tells Peccadillo "'how hard it is for her to leave him.' Questa maledetta porta si blocca, si blocca comunque diavolo lo faccio. He stopped and made great play of cleaning his glasses with his handkerchief. When Jiggly sang it, there wasn't a dry eye in the house, he mumbled. I was there. It was then that I decided that I would... Oh, great days indeed. He put his glasses on and blew his nose. I'll run through it once, he said, just so that you can understand how it is supposed to go. Very well, André. The young man who had been drafted in to play the piano in the rehearsal room nodded and winked surreptitiously at Agnes. She pretended not to have seen him and listened with an expression of acute studiousness as the old man worked his way through the score. And now, he said, let us see how you manage... He handed her the score and nodded at the pianist. Agnes sang the aria, or at least a few bars of it. André stopped playing and leaned his head against the piano, trying to stifle a laugh. Ahem, said Undershaft. Was I doing something wrong? You were singing tenor, said Undershaft, looking sternly at André. She was singing in your voice, sir. Perhaps you can sing it like, um, Christine would sing it? They started again. Questa maledetta! Undershaft held up both hands. Andre's shoulders were shaking with the effort of not laughing. Yes, yes, accurately observed. I dare say you're right. But could we start again, and uh, perhaps you could sing it how you think it should be sung? Agnes nodded. They started again, and finished. Undershaft had sat down, half turned away. He wouldn't look round to face her. Agnes stood watching him uncertainly. Uh, was that all right? she said. Andre, the pianist, got up slowly and took her hand. I think we'd better leave him, he said softly, pulling her towards the door. 
Was it that bad? Not exactly. Undershaft raised his head, but didn't turn it towards her. More practice on those R's, madam, and strive for greater security above the stave, he said hoarsely. Yes, yes, I will. Andre let her out into the corridor, shut the door, and then turned to her. That was astounding, he said. Did you ever hear the great Jiggly sing? I don't even know who Jiggly is. What was I singing? You didn't know that either? I don't know what it means, no. Andre looked down at the score in his hand. Well, I'm not much good at the language, but I suppose the opening could be sung something like this. This damn door sticks, this damn door sticks, it sticks no matter what the hell I do. It's marked pull, and indeed I am pulling, perhaps it should be marked push. Agnes blinked. Well, that's it? Yes, but I thought it was supposed to be very moving and romantic. It is, said Andre. It was. This isn't real life, this is opera. It doesn't matter what the words mean, it's the feeling that matters. Hasn't anyone told... Look... I'm in rehearsals for the rest of the afternoon, but perhaps we could meet tomorrow, perhaps after breakfast? Oh, no, thought Agnes. Here it comes. The blush was moving inexorably upwards. She wondered if one day it might reach her face and carry on going, so that it ended up as a big pink cloud over her head. Er, uh, yes, she said. Yes, that would be very helpful. Now I've got to go. He gave her a weak little smile and patted her hand. And I'm really sorry it's happening this way, because... That was astounding. He went to walk away and then stopped. Uh, sorry if I frightened you last night, he said. What? On the stairs. Oh, that, I wasn't frightened. You uh, didn't mention it to anyone, did you? I'd hate people to think I was worrying over nothing. Hadn't given it another thought, to tell you the truth. I know you can't be the ghost if that's what you're worried about, eh? Me? <laughs> the ghost? Ha ha! Ha ha, said Agnes. So, uh... See you tomorrow, then. Fine. Agnes headed back to her room, deep in thought. Christine was there, looking critically at herself in the mirror. She spun around as Agnes entered. She even moved with exclamation marks. Oh, Perdita, have you heard? I'm to sing the part of Iodine tonight. Isn't that wonderful? She dashed across the room and endeavoured to pick Agnes up and hug her, settling eventually for just hugging her. And I heard they're already letting you in the chorus. Yes, indeed. Isn't that nice? I've been practising all morning with Mr Salzella. Casta, maledetta, porter si blocker. She twirled happily. Invisible sequins filled the air with their shine. When I'm very famous, she said, you won't regret having a friend in me. I shall do my very best to help you. I'm sure you bring me luck. Yes, indeed, said Agnes, hopelessly. "'because my dear father told me that one day "'a dear little pixie would arrive to help me achieve my great ambition, "'and you know, I think that little pixie is you.' "'Agnes smiled unhappily. "'After you'd known Christine for any length of time, "'you found yourself fighting a desire to look into her ear "'to see if you could spot daylight coming out the other way. "'Er, uh, I thought we had swapped rooms.' "'Oh, that!' said Christine, smiling. "'Wasn't I silly? "'Anyway, I shall need the big mirror now that I am to be a prima donna. "'You don't mind, do you?' "'What? "'Oh, no, 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 of course not. Uh, "'If you're sure.' "'Agnes looked at the mirror and then at the bed, and then at Christine. "'No,' 
she said, shocked at the enormity of the idea that had just presented itself, delivered from the perdita of her soul. I'm sure that would be fine. Dr. Undershaft blew his nose and tried to tidy himself up. Well, he didn't have to stand for it. Perhaps the child was somewhat on the heavy side, but Jiggly, for example, had once crushed a tenor to death, and no one had thought any worse of her for it. He'd protest to Mr. Bucket. Dr. Undershaft was a single-minded man. He believed in voices. It didn't matter what anyone looked like. He never watched opera with his eyes open. It was the music that mattered, not the acting and certainly not the shape of the singers. What did it matter what shape she was? Dame Tessitura had a beard you could strike a match on, and a nose flattened half across her face, but she was still one of the best basses who ever opened beer bottles with her thumb. Of course, Salzella said that while everyone accepted that large women of fifty could play thin girls of seventeen, people wouldn't accept that a fat girl of seventeen could do it. He said they'd cheerfully swallow a big lie and choke on a little fib. Salzella said that sort of thing. Something was going wrong these days. The whole place seemed sick, if a building could be sick. The crowds were still coming, but the money just didn't seem to be there anymore. Everything seemed to be so expensive, and now they were owned by a cheesemonger, for heaven's sake, some grubby counter-jumper who'd probably want to bring in fancy ideas. What they needed was a businessman, some clerk who could add up columns of figures properly and not interfere. That was the trouble with all the owners he had experienced. They started off thinking of themselves as businessmen and then suddenly began to think they could make an artistic contribution. Still, possibly cheesemongers had to add up cheeses. Just so long as this one stayed in his office with the books and didn't go around acting as though he owned the place just because he happened to own the place. Undershaft blinked. He'd gone the wrong way again. No matter how long you'd been here, this place was a maze. He was behind the stage in the orchestra's room. Instruments and folding chairs had been stacked everywhere. His foot toppled a beer bottle. The twang of a string made him look around. Broken instruments littered the floor. There were half a dozen smashed violins. Several oboes had been broken. The trom had been pulled right out of a trombone. He looked up into someone's face. But why are you... The half-moon spectacles tumbled over and over and smashed on the boards. Then the attacker lowered his mask as smooth and white as the skull of an angel, and stepped forward purposefully. Dr. Undershaft blinked. There was a darkness. A cloaked figure raised its head and looked at him through bony white sockets. Dr. Undershaft's recent memories were a little confused, but one fact stood out. Ah, he said. Got you. You're the ghost. You know, you're rather amusingly wrong. Dr. Undershaft watched another masked figure pick up the body of Dr. Undershaft and drag it into the shadows. Oh, I see. I'm dead. Death nodded. Such would appear to be the case. That was murder. Does anyone know? The murderer. And you, of course. But him. How can... Undershaft began. We must go, said Death. But he just killed me, strangled me with his bare hands. Yes, chalk it up to experience. You mean, I can't do anything about it? Leave it to the living. Generally speaking, they get uneasy when the deceased takes a constructive role in a murder investigation. 
They tend to lose concentration. You know, you do have a very good bass voice. Thank you. Are there going to be choirs and things? Would you like some? Agnes slipped out through the stage door and into the streets of Arkmorpork. She blinked in the light. The air felt slightly prickly and sharp and too cold. What she was about to do was wrong, very wrong, and all her life she'd done things that were right. Go on, said Perdita. In fact, she probably wouldn't even do it, but there was no harm in just asking where there was a herbal shop. So she asked. And there was no harm in going in... So she went in, and it certainly wasn't against any kind of law to buy the ingredients she bought. After all, she might get a headache later on or be unable to sleep. And it would mean nothing at all to take them back to her room and tuck them under the mattress. That's right, said Perdita. In fact, if you averaged out the moral difficulty of what she was proposing over all the little activities she had to undergo in order to do it, it probably wasn't that bad at all, really. These comforting thoughts were arranging themselves in her mind as she headed back. She turned a corner and nearly walked into Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax. She flung herself against the wall and stopped breathing. They hadn't seen her, although Nanny's foul cat leered at her over its owner's shoulder. They'd take her back. She just knew they would. The fact that she was a free agent and her own mistress and quite at liberty to go off to Ark Moorpork had nothing to do with it. They'd interfere. They always did. She scurried back along the alley and ran as fast as she could to the rear of the opera house. The stage doorkeeper took no notice of her. Granny and Nanny strolled through the city towards the area known as the Isle of Gods. It wasn't exactly Ankh, and it wasn't exactly Moorpork, being situated where the river bent so much it almost formed an island. It was where the city kept all those things it occasionally needed but was uneasy about, like the watch house, the theatres, the prison and the publishers. It was the place for all those things which might go off bang in unexpected ways. Grebo ambled along behind them. The air was full of new smells, and he was looking forward to seeing if any of them belonged to anything he could eat, fight, or ravish. Nanny Og found herself getting increasingly worried. This isn't really us, Esme, she said. Who is it, then? I mean, the book was just a bit of fun. No sense in making ourselves unpopular, is there? "'Can't have witches being done down, Githa.' "'I don't feel done down. "'I felt fine until you told me I was done down,' "'said Nanny, putting her finger on a major sociological point. "'You've been exploited,' said Granny firmly. "'No, I ain't.' "'Yes, you have. You're a downtrodden mass.' "'No, I ain't. "'You've been swindled out of your life savings,' said Granny. Two dollars?' "'Well, it's all you'd actually saved,' said Granny, accurately. "'Only cos I spent everything else,' said Nanny. "'Other people salted away money for their old age, "'but Nanny preferred to accumulate memories. "'Well, there you are, then. "'I was putting that by for some new piping "'for my still-up at Copperhead,' said Nanny. "'You know how that scumble eats away at the metal?' "'Distillation of alcohol was illegal in Lancre. "'On the other hand, King Verence had long ago "'given up any idea of stopping a witch "'doing something she wanted to do,' so merely required Nanny Og to keep her still somewhere it wasn't obvious. She thoroughly approved of the prohibition, since this gave her an unchallenged market for her own product, known wherever men fell backwards into a ditch as Suicider.
You were putting a little something by for some security and peace of mind in your old age, Granny translated. You don't get peace of mind with my scumble, said Nanny happily. Pieces, yes, but not peace. It's made from the finest apples, you know, she added. Well, mainly apples. Granny stopped outside an ornate doorway and peered at the brass plate affixed thereon. This is the place, she said. They looked at the door. I've never been one for front doors, said Nanny, shifting from one foot to the other. Granny nodded. Witches had a thing about front doors. A brief search located an alleyway which led around the back of the building. Here was a pair of much larger doors, wide open. Several dwarfs were loading bundles of books onto a cart. A rhythmic thumping came from somewhere beyond the doorway. No one took any notice of the witches as they wandered inside. Movable type was known in Arkmorpork, but if wizards heard about it, they moved it where no one could find it. They generally didn't interfere with the running of the city, but when it came to movable type, the pointy foot was put down hard. They had never explained why, and people didn't press the issue, because you didn't press the issue with wizards, not if you liked yourself the shape you were. They simply worked around the problem and engraved everything. This took a long time, and meant that Ankh Morpork was, for example, denied the benefit of newspapers, leaving the population to fool themselves as best they could. A press was thumping gently at one end of the warehouse. Beside it, at long tables, a number of dwarfs and humans were stitching pages together and gluing on the covers. Nanny took a book off a pile. It was The Joy of Snacks. "'Can I help you, ladies?' said a voice. Its tone suggested very clearly that it wasn't anticipating offering any kind of help whatsoever, except out into the street at speed. "'We've come about this book,' said Granny. "'I'm Mrs Og,' said Nanny Og. The man looked her up and down. "'Oh, yes. Can you identify yourself?' "'Certainly. I'd know me anywhere.' "'Ha!' Well, I happen to know what Githa Og looks like, madam, and she does not look like you. Nanny Og opened her mouth to reply, and then said in the voice of one who has stepped happily into the road and only now remembers about the onrushing coach, Oh. And how do you know what Mrs Og looks like? said Granny. Oh, is that the time? We'd better be going, said Nanny. Because, as a matter of fact, she sent me a picture said Goatburger, taking out his wallet. "'I'm sure we're not at all interested,' said Nanny, hurriedly pulling on Granny's arm. "'I'm extremely interested,' said Granny. She snatched a folded piece of paper out of Goatburger's hands and peered at it. "'Ah, yes, that's Githa Og, all right,' she said. "'Yes, indeed, I remember when that young artist came to Lancre for the summer. "'I wore my hair longer in those days,' muttered Nanny. "'Just as well, considering,' said Granny. "'I didn't know you had copies, though.' "'Oh, you know how it is when you're young,' said Nanny dreamily. "'It was doodle-doodle-doodle all summer long.' She awoke from her reverie. "'And I still weigh the same now as I did then,' she added. "'Except that it's shifted,' said Granny nastily. She handed the sketch back to Goatburger. "'That's her, all right,' she said. "'But it's out by about sixty years and several layers of clothing.' This is Githerog right here. You're telling me this came up with banana-nana soup surprise? Did you try it? said Nanny. Mr Cropper the head printer did, yes. Was he surprised? Not half as surprised as Mrs Cropper. It can take people like that, 
said Nanny. I think perhaps I overdo the nutmeg. Goatburger stared at her. Doubt was beginning to assail him. You only had to look at Nanny Og grinning back at you to believe she could write something like The Joy of Snacks. Did you really write this? he said. From memory, said Nanny proudly. And now she'd like some money, said Granny. Mr Goatburger's face twisted up as though he'd just eaten a lemon and washed it down with vinegar. But we gave her the money back, he said. See, said Nanny, her face falling, I told you, Esme. She wants some more, said Granny. No, I don't. No, she doesn't, Goatburger agreed. She does, said Granny. She wants a little bit of money for every book you've sold. I don't expect to be treated like royalty, said Nanny. Strictly speaking, this means being chased by photographers anxious to get a picture of you with your vest off. You shut up, said Granny. I know what you want. We want some money, Mr Goatburger. And what if I won't give it to you? Granny glared at him. Then we shall go away and think about what to do next, she said. That's no idle threat, said Nanny. There's a lot of people have regretted Esme thinking about what to do next. Come back when you've thought, then, snapped Goatburger. He stormed off. Oh, I don't know. Authors wanting to be paid. Good grief. He disappeared among the stacks of books. Uh, do you think that could have gone better? said Nanny. Granny glanced at the table beside them. It was stacked with long sheets of paper. She nudged a dwarf, who had been watching the argument with some amusement. What are these? she said. They're proofs for the almanac, he saw her blank expression. They're sort of a trial run for the book, so as we can check that all the spelling mistakes have been left in. Granny picked it up. Come, Githa, she said. I don't want trouble, Esme, said Nanny Og as she hurried after her. It's only money. It ain't money any more, said Granny. It's a way of keeping score. Mr Bucket picked up a violin. It was in two pieces, held together by the strings. One of them broke. Who do something like this? he said. Honestly, Salzella, what is the difference between opera and madness? Is this a trick question? No. Then I'd say, better scenery. Ah, I thought so. Salzella rooted among the destruction and stood up with a letter in his hand. Would you like me to open it? He said. It's addressed to you. Bucket shut his eyes. Go on, he said. Don't bother about the details. Just tell me how many exclamation marks. Five. Oh. Salzella passed the paper over. Bucket read. Dear Bucket, whoops, ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha, yours, the opera ghost. What can we do, he said. One moment he writes polite little notes, the next he goes mad on paper. Herr Trubelmarker has got everyone out hunting for new instruments, said Salzella. Are violins more expensive than ballet shoes? There are few things in the world more expensive than ballet shoes. Violins happen to be among them, said Salzella. <gasps> oh, further expense? It seems so, yes. But I thought the ghost liked music. Herr Trubelmacher tells me the organ is, is, is beyond repair. He stopped. He was aware that he had exclaimed a little less rationally than a sane man should. Oh, well, Bucket continued wearily. The show must go on, I suppose. Yes, indeed, said Salzella. 
Bucket shook his head. How's it all going for tonight? I think it will work, if that's what you mean. Perdita seems to have a very good grasp of the part. And Christine? She has an astonishingly good grasp of wearing a dress. Between them, they make one prima donna. The proud owner of the opera house got slowly to his feet. It all seems so simple, he moaned. I thought, opera, how hard can it be? Songs, pretty girls dancing, nice scenery, lots of people handing over cash. Got to be better than the cutthroat world of yoghurt, I thought. <laughs> now, everywhere I go, there's... Something crunched under his shoe. He picked up the remains of a pair of half-moon spectacles. These are um, Dr. Undershafts, aren't they? he said. What are they doing here? His eyes met Salzella's steady gaze. Oh, no, he groaned. Salzella turned slightly and stared hard at a big double bass case leaning against the wall. He raised his eyebrows. Oh, no, said Bucket again. Go on, open it. My hands have gone all sweaty. Salzella padded across to the case and grasped the lid. Ready? Bucket nodded wearily. The case was flung open. Oh, no. Salzella craned round to see. Ah, yes, he said. A broken neck, and the body has been kicked in considerably. That'll cost a dollar or two to repair, and no mistake. All the strings are busted. Are double bases more expensive to rebuild than violins? I am afraid that all musical instruments are incredibly expensive to repair, with the possible exception of the triangle, said Salzella. However, could have been worse, hmm? What? Well, it could have been Dr. Undershaft in there, yes? Bucket gaped at him, and then shut his mouth. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, of course, oh, yes, that would have been worse. Yes, bit of luck there, I suppose, yes, hmm? So that's an opera house, is it? said Granny. Looks like someone built a great big box and glued the architecture on afterwards. She coughed and appeared to be waiting for something. Can we have a look around? said Nanny, dutifully, aware that Granny's curiosity was equalled only by her desire not to show it. It can't do any harm, I suppose, said Granny, as if granting a big favour. Seeing as we've nothing else to do right this minute. The opera house was indeed that most efficiently multifunctional of building designs. It was a cube. But as Granny had pointed out, the architect had suddenly realised late in the day that there ought to be some sort of decoration, and had shoved it on hurriedly in a riot of friezes, pillars, corribants and curly bits. Gargoyles had colonised the higher reaches. The effect, seen from the front, was of a huge wall of tortured stone. Round the back, of course, there was the usual drab mess of windows, pipes and damp stone walls. One of the rules of a certain type of public architecture is that it only happens at the front. Granny paused under a window. Someone's singing, she said. Listen. La 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 la, trilled someone. Do re mi fa sol That's opera right enough, said Granny. Sounds foreign to me. Nanny had an unexpected gift for languages. She could be comprehensibly incompetent in a new one within an hour or two. What she spoke was one step away from gibberish, but it was authentically foreign gibberish. And she knew that Granny Weatherwax, whatever her other qualities, had an even bigger tin ear for languages than she did for music. Uh, could be, she said. There's always a lot going on, I know that. Our Nev said they sometimes do different operations every night.
"'How did he find that out?' said Granny. "'Well, there was a lot of lead. "'That takes some shifting. "'He said he liked the noisy ones. "'He could hum along, and also no one heard the hammering.' "'The witches strolled onwards. "'Did you notice young Agnes nearly bump into us back there?' said Granny. "'Yes, it was all I could do not to turn around,' said Nanny. "'She wasn't very pleased to see us, was she? "'I practically heard her gasp.' "'That's very suspicious, if you ask me,' said Nanny. "'I mean, she sees two friendly faces from back home. "'You'd expect her to come running up.' "'We're old friends, after all. "'Old friends of her grandma and her mum, anyway. "'And that's practically the same.' "'Remember those eyes in the teacup?' said Nanny. "'She could be under the gaze of some strange occult force. "'We've got to be careful. "'People can be very tricky when they're in the grip of a strange occult force.' "'Remember Mr. Scruple over in Slice?' "'That wasn't a strange occult force. "'That was acid stomach.' "'Well, it certainly seemed strangely occult for a while, "'especially if the windows were shut.' "'Their perambulation had taken them to the Opera House's stage door. "'Granny looked up at the line of posters. "'La Triviata,' she read aloud. "'The Ring of the Nibelungingung.' "'Well, "'Basically, there are two sorts of opera,' said Nanny, "'who also had the true witch's ability to be confidently expert "'on the basis of no experience whatsoever. "'There's your heavy opera, where basically people sing foreign "'and it goes like, oh, I am dying, oh, I'm dying, oh, that's what I'm doing. "'And there's your light opera, where they sing in foreign "'and it basically goes, beer, 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 I like to drink lots of beer.' although sometimes they drink champagne instead. That's basically all of opera, really. What? Either dying or drinking beer? Basically, yes, said Nanny, contriving to suggest that this was the whole gamut of human experience. And that's opera? Well, there might be some other stuff, but mostly it's stout or stabbing. Granny was aware of a presence. She turned. A figure had emerged from the stage door, carrying a poster, a bucket of glue and a brush. It was a strange figure, a sort of neat scarecrow, in clothes slightly too small for it, although to be truthful, there were probably no clothes that would have fit that body. The ankles and wrists seemed infinitely extensible and independently guided. It encountered the two witches standing at the poster board and stopped politely. They could see the sentence marshalling itself behind the unfocused eyes. "'Excuse me, ladies. The show must go on.' The words were all there, and they made sense, but each sentence was fired out into the world as a unit. Granny pulled Nanny to one side. "'Thank you.' They watched in silence as the man, with great and meticulous care, applied paste to a neat rectangle and then affixed the poster, smoothing every crease methodically. "'What's your name, young man?' said Granny. "'Walter.' "'That's a nice beret you have there.' "'My mum bought it for me.' Walter chased the last air bubble to the edge of the paper and stood back. Then, completely ignoring the witches in his preoccupation with his task, he picked up the paste pot and went back inside. The witches stared at the new poster in silence. "'You know, I wouldn't mind seeing an operation.' said Nanny after a while. Signor Basilica did give us the tickets. Oh, you know me, said Granny. Can't be having with that sort of thing at all. 
Nanny looked sideways at her and grinned to herself. This was a familiar weatherwax opening line. It meant, of course I want to, but you've got to persuade me. You're right, of course, she said. It's for them folks in all their fine carriages. It's not for the likes of us. Granny looked hesitant for a moment. I expect it's having ideas above our station, Nanny went on. I expect if we went in they'd say, be off, you nasty old crones. Oh, they would, would they? I don't expect they want common folk like what we are coming in with all those smart, knobby people, said Nanny. Is that a fact? Is that a fact, madam? You just come with me. Granny stalked round to the front of the building, where people were already alighting from coaches. She pushed her way up the steps and shouldered through the crowd to the ticket office. She leaned forward. The man behind the grill leaned back. Nasty old crones, eh? she snapped. I beg your pardon? Not before time. See here? We've got tickets for a... Uh... She looked down at the pieces of cardboard and pulled Nanny Og over. It says here stalls. The cheek of it. Stalls? Us? She turned back to the ticket man. See here, stalls aren't good enough. We want seats in... She looked up at the board by the ticket window. The gods. Yes, that sounds about right. I'm sorry? You've got tickets for stall seats and you want to exchange them for seats in the gods? Yes, and don't you go expecting us to pay any more money. I, I wasn't going to ask you for... Just as well, said Granny, smiling triumphantly. She looked approvingly at the new tickets. Come, Githa. Uh, excuse me, said the man as Nanny Og turned away. But what is that on your shoulders? It's a fur collar, said Nanny. Excuse me, but I just saw it flick its tail. Yes, I happen to believe in beauty without cruelty. Agnes was aware of something happening backstage. Little groups of men were forming and then breaking up as various individuals hurried away about their mysterious tasks. Out in front, the orchestra was already tuning up. The chorus was filing on to be a busy marketplace in which various jugglers, gypsies, sword-swallowers and gaily-dressed yokels would be entirely unsurprised at an apparently drunken baritone strolling on to sing an enormous amount of plot at a passing tenor. She saw Mr Bucket and Mr Salzella deep in argument with the stage manager. How can we search the entire building? This place is a maze. He, he might have just uh, uh, wandered off somewhere. He's as blind as a bat without those glasses. But we can't be certain something's happened to him. Oh, yes, you didn't say that when we opened the double base case. You were certain he was going to be inside. Admit it. I, 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 I wasn't expecting just to find a smashed double base, yes, but I, I was feeling a bit mithered at that point. A sword swallower nudged Agnes. What? Curtain up in one minute, dear, he said, smearing mustard on his sword. Has something happened to Dr. Undershaft? Couldn't say, dear. You wouldn't have any salt, would you? Excuse me. Excuse me. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. Oh, oh, was that your foot? Oh, excuse me. Leaving a trail of annoyed and pained patrons in their wake, the witches trod their way to their seats. Granny elbowed herself comfortable and then, having in some matters the boredom threshold of a four-year-old, said, What's happening now? Nanny's skimpy knowledge of opera didn't come to her aid, so she turned to the lady beside her. Excuse me. Uh, could I borrow your programme? Thank you. Excuse me, could I borrow your spectacles? 
So kind. She spent a few moments in careful study. Hmm. This is the overture, she said. It's kind of a free sample of what's going to happen. It's got a summary of the story, too. La Triviata. Her lips moved as she read. Occasionally, her brow wrinkled. Well, it's quite simple, really, she said at last. A lot of people are in love with one another. There's considerable dressing up as other people and general confusion. There's a cheeky servant, no one really knows who anyone is, a couple of old dukes go mad, chorus of gypsies, etc. Your basic opera. Someone's probably going to turn out to be someone else's long-lost son or daughter or wife or something. Shh, said a voice behind them. Wish we'd brought something to eat, muttered Granny. I think I've got some peppermints in my knicker leg. Shh. I would like my spectacles back, please. Here you are, Mum. They're not very good, are they? Someone tapped Nanny Og on the shoulder. Madam, your first stole is eating my chocolates. And someone tapped Granny Weatherwax on her shoulder. Madam, kindly remove your hat. Nanny Og choked on her peppermint. Granny Weatherwax turned to the red-faced gentleman behind her. You do know what a woman in a pointy hat is, don't you? She said. Yes, madam. A woman in a pointy hat is sitting in front of me. Granny gave him a stare, and then, to Nanny's surprise, she removed her hat. I do beg your pardon, she said. I can see I was inadvertently bad-mannered. Pray excuse me. She turned back to the stage. Nanny Og started breathing again. You feeling all right, Esme? Never better. Granny Weatherwax surveyed the auditorium, oblivious to the sounds around her. I assure you, madam, your fur is eating my chocolates. It started on the second layer. Oh, dear. Uh, show him the little map inside the lid, will you? He's only after the truffles, and you can soon rub the dribble off the others. Do you mind being quiet? I don't mind. It's this man and his chocolates that's making the noise. A big room, Granny thought. A great big room without windows. There was a tingling in her thumbs. She looked at the chandelier. The rope disappeared into an alcove in the ceiling. Her gaze passed along the rows of boxes. They were all quite crowded. On one, though, the curtains were almost closed, as if someone inside wanted to see out without being seen. Then Granny looked among the stalls. The audience was mainly human. Here and there was the hulking shape of a troll, although the troll equivalent of operas usually went on for a couple of years. A few dwarf helmets gleamed, although dwarfs normally weren't interested in anything without dwarfs in. There seemed to be a lot of feathers down there, and here and there the glint of jewellery. Shoulders were being worn bare this season. A lot of attention had been paid to appearances. The people were here to look, not to see. She closed her eyes. This was when you started being a witch. It wasn't when you did headology on daft old men, or mixed up medicines, or stuck up for yourself, or knew one herb from another. It was when you opened your mind to the world and carefully examined everything it picked up. She ignored her ears until the sounds of the audience became just a distant buzz. Or at least a distant buzz broken by the voice of Nanny Og. Says here that Dame Timpani, who sings the part of Quizella, is a diver, said Nanny. So I reckon this is like a part-time job then. Probably quite a good idea on account of you have to be able to hold your breath. Good training for the singing. Granny nodded without opening her eyes. She kept them closed as the opera started. Nanny, who knew when to leave her friend to her own devices, tried to keep quiet but felt impelled to give out a running commentary. 
Then she said, Ah, there's Agnes! Hey, hey, that's Agnes! Stop waving and sit down, murmured Granny, trying to hold on to her waking dream. Nanny leaned over the balcony. She's dressed up as a gypsy, she said, and now there's a girl coming forward to sing. She peered at the stolen programme. The famous Departure Aria, it says here. Now that's what I call a good voice. That's Agnes singing, said Granny. No, it's this girl, Christine. Shut your eyes, you daft old woman, and tell me if that isn't Agnes singing, said Granny. Nanny Og obediently shut her eyes for a moment and then opened them again. It's Agnes singing! Yes, but there's that girl with the big smile right out there in front, moving her lips and everything. Yes. Nanny scratched her head. Something a bit wrong here, Esme. Can't have people stealing our Agnes's voice. Granny's eyes were still shut. Tell me if the curtains on that box down there on the right have moved, she said. I just saw them twitch, Esme. Ah. Granny let herself relax again. She sank into the seat as the aria washed over her and opened her mind once more. Edges, walls, doors. Once a space was enclosed, it became a universe of its own. Some things remained trapped in it. The music passed through one side of her head and out the other, but with it came other things, strands of things, echoes of old screams. She drifted down further, down below the conscious into the darkness beyond the circle of firelight. There was fear here. It stalked the place like a great dark animal. It lurked in every corner. It was in the stones. Old terror crouched in the shadows. It was one of the most ancient terrors, the one that meant that no sooner had mankind learned to walk on two legs than it dropped to its knees. It was the terror of impermanence, the knowledge that all this would pass away, that a beautiful voice or a wonderful figure was something whose arrival you couldn't control and whose departure you couldn't delay. It wasn't what she'd been looking for, but it was perhaps the sea in which it swam. She went deeper, and there it was, roaring through the nighttime of the soul of the place like a deep, cold current. As she drew closer, she saw that it was not one thing, but two, twisted around one another. She reached out. Trickery, lies, deceit, murder. No! She blinked. Everyone had turned to look at her. Nanny tugged at her dress. Sit down, Esme! Granny stared. The chandelier hung peacefully over the crowded seats. They beat him to death! What's that, Esme? And they throw him into the river! Esme! Shh! Madam, will you sit down at once? And now it's started on the Nougat Whirls! Granny snatched at her hat and did a crabwise run along the row, crushing some of the finest footwear in Ankh-Morpork under her thick lancre soles. Nanny hung back reluctantly. She'd quite enjoyed the song and she wanted to applaud, but her pair of hands wasn't necessary. The audience had exploded as soon as the last note had died away. Nanny Og looked at the stage and took note of something and smiled. Like that, eh? Githa! She sighed. Coming, Esme. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, sorry. Uh, excuse me. Granny Weatherwax was out in the red plush corridor, leaning with her forehead against the wall. This is a bad one, Githa, she muttered. It's all twisted up. I ain't at all sure I can make it happen right. The poor soul... She straightened up. Look at me, Githa, will you? Githa obediently opened her eyes wide. She winced a little as a fragment of Granny Weatherwax's consciousness crept behind her eyes. 
Granny put her hat on, tucking in the occasional errant wisp of grey hair, and then taking one by one the eight hatpins and ramming them home with the same frowning deliberation with which a mercenary might check his weapons. All right, she said at last. Nanny Og relaxed. It's not that I mind, Esme, she said, but I wish you'd use a mirror. Waste of money, said Granny. Now fully armoured, she strode off along the corridor. "'Glad to see you didn't lose your temper with the man who went on about your hat,' said Nanny, running along behind. "'No point. He's going to be dead tomorrow.' "'Oh, dear. What of? Run over by a cart, I think.' "'Why didn't you tell him?' "'I could be wrong.' Granny reached the stairs and thundered down them. "'Where are we going? I want to see who's behind those curtains.' The applause, distant but still thunderous, filled the stairwell. They certainly like Agnes's voice, said Nanny. Yes, I hope we're in time. Oh, bugger. What? I left Grebo up there. Merely likes meeting new people. Good grief, this place is a maze. Granny stepped out into a curved corridor, rather plusher than the one they had left. There was a series of doors along it. Ah, now then. She walked along the row, counting, and then tried a handle. Can I help you, ladies? They turned. A little old woman had come up softly behind them, carrying a tray of drinks. Granny smiled at her. Nanny Og smiled at the tray. "'We were just wondering,' said Granny, "'which person in these boxes likes to sit with the curtains nearly shut?' The tray began to shake. "'Here, shall I hold that for you?' said Nanny. "'You'll spill something if you're not careful.' "'What do you know about Box Eight? said the old lady. "'Ah, oh, Box Eight said Granny. That'd be the one, yes. That's this one over here, isn't it? No, please. Granny strode forward and grasped the handle. The door was locked. The tray was thrust into Nanny's welcoming hands. Well, thank you. I don't mind if I do, she said. The woman pulled at Granny's arm. Don't. It'll bring terrible bad luck. Granny thrust out her hand. The king, madam. Behind her, Nanny inspected a glass of champagne. Don't make him angry. It's bad enough as it is. The woman was clearly terrified. Iron, said Granny, rattling the handle. Can't magic iron. Here, said Nanny, stepping forward a little unsteadily. Give me one of your hatpins. Our nebs taught me all kinds of tricks. Granny's hand rose to her hat, and then she looked at Mrs Plinge's lined face. She lowered her hand. No, she said. No, I reckon we'll leave it for now. "'I don't know what's happening,' sobbed Mrs Plinge. "'It never used to be like this.' "'Have a good blow,' said Nanny, "'handing her a grubby handkerchief and patting her kindly on the back. "'There was none of this killing people. "'He just wanted somewhere to watch the opera. "'It made him feel better.' "'Who's this we're talking about?' said Granny. "'Nanny Og gave her a warning look over the top of the old woman's head. "'There were some things best left to Nanny.' He'd unlock it for an hour every Friday for me to tidy up, and there was always his little note saying thank you or apologising for the chocolates down the seat. <laughs> and where was the harm in it? That's what I'd like to know. Have another good blow, said Nanny. And now there's people dropping like flies out of the flies. They say it's him, but I know he never meant any harm. Course not said Nanny soothingly. Many's the time I've seen them look up at the box. They always felt the better for it if they saw him. And then poor Mr Pounder was strangulated. I looked around and there was his hat, just like that. 
It's terrible when that happens, said Nanny Og. What's your name, dear? Mrs. Plinge, sniffed Mrs. Plinge. It came right down in front of me. I'd have recognised it anywhere. I think it would be a good idea if we took you home, Mrs. Plinge, said Granny. Oh, dear, I've got all these ladies and gentlemen to see to. And anyway, it's dangerous going home this time of night. Walter walks me home, but he's got to stay late tonight. Oh, dear. Have another good blow, said Nanny. Find a bit that isn't too soggy. There was a series of sharp pops. Granny Weatherwax had interlocked her fingers and extended her hands at arm's length so that her knuckles cracked. Dangerous, eh? she said. Well, we can't see you all upset like this. I'll walk you home and Mrs Ogg will see to things here. Only I've got to attend to the boxes. I've got all these drinks to serve. Could have sworn I had them a moment ago. Mrs Ogg knows all about drinks, said Granny, glaring at her friend. There's nothing I don't know about drinks, agreed Nanny, shamelessly emptying the last glass, especially these. And, and what about our Walter? He'll worry himself silly. Walter's your son, said Granny. Where's a beret? The old woman nodded. Only I always comes back for him if he's working late, she began. You come back for him, but he sees you home, said Granny. It's... he's... he's... Mrs Plinge rallied. He's a good boy, she said defiantly. I'm sure he is, Mrs Plinge, said Granny. She carefully lifted the little white bonnet off Mrs Plinge's head and handed it to Nanny, who put it on and also took the little white apron. That was the good thing about black. You could be nearly anything wearing black, Mother Superior or Madam. It was really just a matter of the style. It just depended on the details. There was a click. Box 8 had bolted itself, and then there was the very faint scrape of a chair being wedged under the door handle. Granny smiled and took Mrs Plinge's arm. I'll be back as soon as I can, she said. Nanny nodded and watched them go. There was a little cupboard at the end of the corridor. It contained a stool, Mrs Plinge's knitting, and a small but very well-stocked bar. There were also, on a polished mahogany plank, a number of bells on big coiled springs. Several of them were bouncing up and down angrily. Nanny poured herself a gin, and gin with a dash of gin, and inspected the rows of bottles with considerable interest. Another bell started to ring. There was a huge jar of stuffed olives. Nanny helped herself to a handful and blew the dust off a bottle of port. A bell fell off its spring. Somewhere out in the corridor, a door opened and a young man's voice bellowed, Where are those drinks, woman? Nanny tried the port. Nanny Og was used to the idea of domestic service. As a girl, she'd been a maid at Lancre Castle, where the king was inclined to press his intentions and anything else he could get hold of. Young Githa Og had already lost her innocence, without regret, since she hadn't found any use for it, but she had some clear ideas about unwelcome intentions, and when he jumped out at her in the scullery, she had technically committed treason with a large leg of lamb swung in both hands. That had ended her life below stairs and put a lengthy crimp in the king's activities above them. The brief experience had given her certain views, which weren't anything so definite as political, but were firmly oggish. And Mrs Plinge had looked as if she didn't get very much to eat, and not a lot of time to sleep either. Her hands had been thin and red. Nanny had a lot of time for the Plinges of the world. Did port go with sherry? Ah, uh, well, no harm in trying. All the bells were ringing now. It must be coming up to the interval. 
She methodically unscrewed the top off a jar of cocktail onions and thoughtfully crunched a couple. Then, as other people started to poke their heads around the doors and make angry demands, she went to the champagne shelf and took down a couple of magnums. She gave them a damn good shake, tucked one under each arm with a thumb on the corks, and stepped out into the corridor. Nanny's philosophy of life was to do what seemed like a good idea at the time, and do it as hard as possible. It had never let her down. The curtains closed. The audience was still on its feet, applauding. "'What happens now?' whispered Agnes to the next gypsy. He pulled off his bandana. "'Well, dear, we generally nip out to... "'Oh, no, they're going for a curtain call.' The curtains opened again. The light caught Christine, who curtsied and waved and sparkled. Her fellow gypsy nudged Agnes. "'Look at Dame Timparney,' he said. "'There's a nose in a sling if ever I saw one.' Agnes stared at the prima donna. "'She's smiling,' she said. "'So does a tiger, dear.' The curtains shut once more, with a finality that said the stage manager was going to strike the set and would scream at someone if they dared to touch those ropes again. Agnes ran off with the others. There wasn't too much to do in the next act. She'd tried to memorise the plot earlier, although other members of the chorus had done their best to dissuade her, on the basis that you could either sing them or understand them, but not both. Nevertheless, Agnes was conscientious. So Peccadillo, tenor, the son of Duke Tagliatella, bass, has secretly disguised himself as a swineherd to woo Quizella, not knowing that Dr. Bufola, baritone, has sold the elixir to Ludi, the servant, without realising he is really the maid Iodine, soprano, dressed up as a boy because Count Artaud, baritone, claims that... A deputy stage manager pulled her out of the way and waved at someone in the wings. Lose the countryside, Ron. There was a series of whistles from off stage, answered by another from above. The backcloth rose. From the gloom above, the sandbag counterweights began to descend. Then Artaud reveals uh, that Zebeline must marry Fideli, I mean Fiabi, not knowing uh, that the family fortunes... The sandbags came down, on one side of the stage at least. On the other side, Agnes was interrupted in her impossible task by the screaming and looked around into the upside-down and not-at-all-well features of the late Dr. Undershaft. Nanny skipped through a handy door, shut it behind her, and leaned on it. After a few moments, the sound of running feet clattered past. Well, that had been fun. She removed the lace bonnet and apron, and because there was a basic honesty in Nanny, she tucked them in a pocket to give back to Mrs. Plinge later. Then she pulled out a flat, round, black shape and banged it against her arm. The point shot out. After a few adjustments, her official hat was almost as good as new. She looked around. A certain absence of light and carpeting, together with a very presence of dust, suggested that this was part of the place the public weren't supposed to see. Oh, damn. She supposed she had better find another door. Of course, that'd mean she'd have to leave Grebo, wherever he was, but he'd turn up. He always did when he wanted feeding. There was a flight of steps leading down. She followed them to a corridor which was slightly better lit and ambled along it for quite a way, and then all she had to do was follow the screams. She emerged among the flats and jumbled props backstage. No one bothered about her. The appearance of a small, amiable old lady was not about to cause comment at this point. People were running backwards and forwards, shouting. More impressionable people were just standing in one place and screaming. A large lady was sprawled over two chairs having hysterics while some distracted stagehands tried to fan her with a script. Nanny Og was not certain whether something important had happened 
or whether this was just a continuation of opera by other means. "'I should loosen her corsets if I was you,' she said as she ambled past. "'Good heavens, madam, there's enough panic in here as it is!' Nanny moved on to an interesting crowd of gypsies, noblemen and stagehands. Witches are curious by definition and inquisitive by nature. She moved in. "'Let me through, I'm a nosy person,' she said, employing both elbows. It worked, as this sort of approach generally does. There was a dead person lying on the floor. Nanny had seen death in a wide variety of guises, and certainly knew strangulation when it presented itself. It wasn't the nicest end, although it could be quite colourful. "'Oh, dear,' she said. "'Poor man. What happened to him?' "'Mr. Bucket says he must have got caught up in the—' someone began. "'He didn't get caught in anything. This is the ghost's work.' said someone else. He could still be up there. All eyes turned upwards. Mr. Salzella sent some stagehands to flush him out. Have they got flaming torches? said Nanny. Several of them looked at her as if wondering for the first time who she was. What? Got to have flaming torches when you're tracking down evil monsters, said Nanny. Well-known fact. There was a moment while this sunk in, and then, that's true, she's right, you know. Well-known fact, dear. Did they have flaming torches? Don't think so, just ordinary lanterns. Oh, they're no good, said Nanny. That's for smugglers' lanterns. For evil monsters, you need flaming torch. Excuse me, boys and girls. The stage manager had stood on the box. Now, he said, a little pale around the face, I know you're all familiar with the phrase, the show must go on. There was a chorus of groans from the chorus. It's very hard to sing a jolly song about eating hedgehogs when you're waiting for an accident to happen to you, shouted a gypsy king. Funny thing, if we're talking about songs about hedgehogs, I myself, Nanny began, but no one was paying her any attention. Now, we don't actually know what happened. Really? Shall we guess? said a gypsy. But we have men up in the fly loft now. Oh, in case of more accidents... And Mr. Bucket has authorised me to say that there will be an additional two dollars bonus tonight in recognition of your bravely agreeing to continue with the show. Money! After a shock like this, money! He thinks he can offer us a couple of dollars and will agree to stay on this cursed stage. Shame! Heartless! Unthinkable! Should be at least four. Right! Right! For shame, my friends, to talk about a few dollars when there is a dead man lying there. Have you no respect for his memory? Exactly. A few dollars is disrespectful. Five dollars are nothing. Nanny Og nodded to herself and wandered off and found a sufficiently big piece of cloth to cover the late Dr. Undershaft. Nanny rather liked the theatrical world. It was its own kind of magic. That was why Esme disliked it, she reckoned. It was the magic of illusions and misdirection and foolery. And that was fine by Nanny Og, because you couldn't be married three times without a little fooling. But it was just close enough to Granny's own kind of magic to make Granny uneasy, which meant she couldn't leave it alone. It was like scratching an itch. People didn't take any notice of little old ladies who looked as though they fitted in, and Nanny Og could fit in faster than a dead chicken in a maggot factory. Besides, Nanny had one additional little talent, which was a mind like a buzzsaw behind a face like an elderly apple.' 